This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Because of the program's theme and controversial subject matter, parental discretion should be exercised. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. You are a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. Correct. Now, and how does the Army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material Co-host Dimitri, I'm Khalid, and today, um, in a spirit of maybe staying a little bit topical, as smoke and flames um, engulf the uh, in every region of the San Francisco Bay Area uh, that I grew up in, I thought it might be apropos to talk about. Uh, one of the more mysterious and strange figures uh, that came out of San Francisco, um, which won't touch overtly too much on our little dive into the world of Kamala last week, but we'll dive into a an even deeper world um, of uh, military psyops, Satanism, child abuse, neo-Nazism, esoteric Hitlerism, and so on. Um, and yes. uh, and so the, that... Uh, the warning at the beginning of the show has never been more opposite. Uh, so, yeah, this is just a content warning uh, for the for the podcast to follow, that there might be some sensitive subjects discussed, um, you know, uh, involving satanic ritual abuse and such things. So, if anything like that... Uh, you know, is a trigger, then be advised. Yes, and I would try to put it in the show notes, the sections uh, in which we talk about particularly things surrounding the satanic, the so-called satanic panic abuse scandals of the 1980s, and um, I will probably provide a timestamp in case you want to skip through some of that, but um, we are actually going to be talking about the uh, 1988 Geraldo special that we copped uh, the intro to our show from, um, and uh, and uh, as Khaled said, it, it has never been more apropos to the episode we are doing today, which is going to be a deep exploration of Lieutenant Colonel Ipsissimus Dr. Michael Angelo Aquino Jr., Baron of Arcane, Clan Campbell. Yes. Well, you forgot sixth degree, you know, Ipsissimus sixth degree. You're Um, right. You're right. 
uh, I believe the only person to ever attain that rank in the Temple of Set, which we've talked about before. So if you've listened to the first two episodes, you know a little bit about Michael Aquino. Uh, we've talked about his theory when he was a military psyop officer um, of Mind War, which we suspect was at least somewhat influential in the sort of a, a strategic uh, the evolution of strategic thinking in the U.S. military and maybe even the wider government from the 1980s onward. Um, but we wanted to do a real comprehensive breakdown of this very strange figure who, uh, if you've ever researched conspiracy theories before, he is somebody that you will stumble upon sooner or later. He not only has uh, not only is his official resume full of very suspicious items, but he's been linked to any number of conspiracy theories. I think in some cases quite justifiably and maybe in other cases a little bit less so. But we're going to try to sort through all the disinfo of which he was such an expert at uh, disseminating and try to get to the core of who this person was and what kind of influence they had and what kind of perhaps uh, ideological tendencies and um, also... It also maybe bears mentioning that he's an important figure in our own friendship. Uh, because you know, do you, early do you on want to talk? Do you want to talk about before we jump in? I think it may be a personal narrative. It could be appropriate. I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is like kind of the genesis of this whole podcast and like our whole uh, adventure into the dark occult together, um, going all the way back to when did all this this happen? I feel like it must have been in 2014. Yes, uh, when like uh, you were kind of first getting into some of this stuff. Um, or start getting into it really seriously. It was kind of after you had gone down uh, the rabbit hole of who was it like Brock Pierce and, and all that yeah. stuff and yeah and Mark uh, Collins Rector and uh, and Chad Shackley and the Den Network, which we will definitely do an episode on later. That was sort of a that was sort of an initiatory conspiracy dive for myself that kind of radicalized me and disturbed me to my core. And it, it had specifically to do with Brock Pierce's involvement in the Bitcoin Foundation and various cryptocurrency outfits and that, uh, but but. But basically, it, it once you were once I started uh, investigating the um, the the very real um, uh, allegations of child abuse and abuse of uh, minor boys in Hollywood in the late '90s of uh, internet millionaire Mark Collins Rector, uh, child actor um, young Gordon Bombay and Mighty Ducks two. Brock Pierce, also first kid, um, a, a Disney child actor, I should add, um, and basically that they were renting a vast mansion in Encino where they were throwing parties wherein they would lure anywhere from, I would say, 12 to 16-year-old boys um, and then ply them with drugs like ecstasy and cocaine and lots of alcohol and then coax them into hot tubs where then they would be molested by various high-ranking executives and big shots in Hollywood. Um, And so uh, 
diving into that angle of child abuse, I quickly came upon somebody who I had never heard of before, um, and that was Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. And the reason his name pops up so readily is because he sort of he sort of merges three vectors. So you have um, somebody who was prominently abused, uh, uh, or sorry, somebody who was prominently accused of participating in some kind of child abuse ring in the mid-1980s in San Francisco at Presidio Army Base um, uh, when he was serving as a reserve PSYOP officer. Um, and then you have, of course, leading from that, his uh, his very highly decorated military career starting in Vietnam in 1969 and uh, his background as a psychological operations officer and also as, uh, a, as an attache to NATO. Uh, he was a Green Beret. As we'll talk later, he was involved in the Phoenix program a program of counterinsurgency, assassination, torture, rape, and murder that was conducted by the CIA in Vietnam. Uh, and then on top of all of that, as if those two things were not bizarre enough, uh, he is one of the most prominent Satanists in modern United States history. Um, he basically joined uh, Anton LaVey's, uh, also a San Francisco native, uh, he joined his Church of uh, Satan in uh, – there's a little disagreement of whether it was 1968 or 69. May Brussel says that he actually joined the church in Vietnam, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, but basically then broke off from the Church of Satan in 1975 to found the Temple of Set after a disagreement with Anton LaVey. Um, and Michael Aquino became the second highest ranking member of the Church of of Satan while he was in it. So he was essentially uh, Anton LaVey's number two while he was still active and reserve duty in the U.S. military. And in 1975, after I believe he claimed uh, receiving a vision from the Egyptian god Set. The uh, way that he frames it, yeah, is that basically the way that it was was uh, the way he conceives that there's aeons. And I think he actually refers to the Crillian aeon of Horus as coming before that. Basically, it's kind of like uh, a sequence of prophecy, in a way. Uh, There's the Aeon of Horus, which Crowley sort of represented. Then uh, there's the Aeon of Set, which LaVey was the prophet of. Or, sorry, the Aeon of Satan, uh, which uh, LaVey was the prophet of. And then there's the Aeon of Set. And that was was initiated when Aquino uh, received this revelation, the Book of Going Forth by Night, which is kind of a play on the Book of Going Forth by Day, the very important... uh, ancient Egyptian uh, religious uh, ritual document um, or sort of uh, format or uh, type or category of ritual document, really. But uh, yes, and basically, in broad terms, what this was was kind of moving away from the sort of uh, shock-oriented or sort of uh, superficial uh, attention-seeking aspect of Satanism, where it was kind of uh, a anti-religious polemic um it's just something that was more based on actual esotericism and communing with um certain figures you know uh to the figure of satan um the way that set frames it himself in the book of uh, going forth by night is that you know satan was useful for a time but now uh set will take you know his true form uh and it, Aquino has said in the past, you know, it was difficult to uh, 
get people on board with worshiping the devil because he's sort of fundamentally evil. Like that is really the main connotation of the devil, you know, Mm -hmm. by his very essence, he's evil. So getting people on board with that is difficult. Whereas set is a bit more of an ambiguous figure. Um, although a queen, understanding of set, uh, as he laid it out is, is not very good, especially now, uh, in the years since. But, uh, when Egyptology and our understanding of, of the way this deity was worshipped has become more sophisticated, his understanding of Set is uh, very limited, but uh, the same thing or there. So anyway, that was the, the genesis of his temple uh, in his own terms. How he framed it was this sort of revelation that happened to him from this, this god. Yes. Uh, and also, I listened to one of the last interviews he did on a sort of occultist conspiracy podcast. And another motivation for him breaking with Anton LaVey was that I believe it was around 1975 that Anton LaVey started charging money to uh, basically, you could basically buy a priesthood in the Church of Satan starting around 1975. And Michael Aquino, according to him, thought this was very hypocritical and not the behavior of a serious questing esoteric order and he had really looked up to Anton LaVey in some ways he was sort of a mentor to him but he saw that uh, he always saw Anton LaVey as a enemy of hypocrisy in all forms and he thought selling uh, ranks basically to anybody who wanted to join because he said Anton LaVey was having some financial troubles um, basically led to a deep sort of philosophical disagreement and that was another reason why he broke off and formed his own uh, his own temple um, and so uh, to get back to sort of our personal story I discovered yeah. all of this in 2014 uh, and it was also in quick succession after that was looking in to uh, like the Jerry Sandusky child abuse ring at Penn State. I was looking into Jeffrey Epstein back in 2014, and I I remember we had some kind of spirited uh, debates, I guess, uh, over it back at the time where, and granted, I was probably coming at it very hot. I still had a very kind of hazy understanding of... Well, at the time, like, all this stuff was mixed in with some other stuff, you know. There was some Sandy Hook stuff. There was, you know, like, the, uh, there's entertainment of a bunch of different things, you know, and there were certain blind spots around maybe certain individuals, like uh, <laughs> maybe a certain Donald Trump uh, was uh, his complicity in some of the Epstein stuff was sort of uh, looked a- away from where, other, well, you know. This was even before, uh, this was yeah, even yes, before Donald before Trump that, ran for president. So it was, I, yes, I, I'm yeah. talking, he, he kind of wasn't, I think it was, his name popped up, but it, it kind of was just like, oh, whatever. It was, much, it seemed much more relevant at the the time yeah. that he was so tight with Bill Clinton, and it, it did seem apparent back then that there was probably you know an eighty percent chance that Hillary Clinton would be the next president, um, and then and then you see people like Larry Summers and uh, various Silicon Valley heads, and you know even people like Stephen Hawking going down to Epstein's island and all of these celebrities, and it really can even to I think as millions more people have experienced since the Epstein thing blew up. It can really make your head spin, and uh, and but especially back then when it was such a marginal thing. And you're right; it w- it was mixed in with all kinds of stuff. Sometimes it was mixed in with UFO conspiracies. Sometimes it was, uh, it, it, I would say, often mixed into kind of various sort of disinfo right wing takes on conspiracies that people like Alex Jones were pushing. 
Um, though curiously, he never kind of dove too deep into any of this stuff. He always kind yes. of kept it at arm's length. Though he, he'll say vaguely that they're all satanic pedophiles, but he won't talk about these actual cases that happened where elites were, you know, abusing children, um, which is fascinating. But anyways, at the time, I think I, I think I showed you Michael Aquino and I said, uh, you know, to the depth of my core, my God, man, like, look at this guy. Look at him. Look at his pointy he's eyebrows and his widow's looking. peak. Uh, he's g- completely goofy looking with his Dr. Spock haircut and his all black and his satanic pendant and his army uniform with a chest full of medals uh, and his yeah. involvement in the Phoenix program. And this uh, and uh, and also going off um Another thing we will do an episode about is the Franklin scandal in Omaha, which is actually my first exposure to the concept of elite pedophile rings in, say, the 1980s onward. And that deserves its own whole episode. But there was one of the uh, victims uh, who actually insisted on testifying in that case, who we mentioned in episode one, Paul Benassi, uh, not only claimed that he encountered Michael Aquino on multiple occasions, um, I believe, you know, passing off suitcases full of money to Larry King to launder for the Iran-Contra enterprise, uh, but also claims that uh, Paul Benassi claims to have participated in the kidnapping of newspaper boy Johnny Gosh in Des Moines, Iowa in the early 80s. And for those who haven't encountered that story, he was one of the first milk carton kids that was very famous. And uh, and his mother came to believe that he was uh, abducted as part of some kind of sinister network or conspiracy. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole thing about there, There's a Netflix documentary called Where's Johnny? Um, I can't remember if it mentions Aquino, but Paul Benassi said that I, I believe that him and the guy that 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 kidnapped Johnny uh, ended up taking him and passing him off to somebody known as the Colonel, I believe in Colorado. And I think he later identified that Colonel as Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino, who was actually um, he was usually stationed at the Presidio base in San Francisco, but he did have some assignments in St. Louis, Missouri, and in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio in the early 1980s. So he was kind of in and out of the Midwest. Um, but uh, based on everything I had read uh, or seen from the Franklin scandal, which is immortalized in a, a band Discovery Channel documentary from 1994 called Conspiracy of Silence, um, that was almost like a, a Rosetta Stone for me. Like, I, I, I believe this story. And so I'm going to compare the subsequent stories I discover to this one. And the Presidio one seemed to sort of check all the boxes and even had some of the same, at least one of the same personalities allegedly involved in it. And so I think when I came to you with Michael Aquino, I said, you know, like, look at this guy. Like, he's got to be evil. And I think you were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a little bit skeptical, right? Um, well, I was skeptical of what uh, what it sort of induced my skepticism was the his website, uh, Heffer.org, uh, or Kefir, I think is how he pronounces it. It's actually like a, it's a real, like, uh, ancient Egyptian word, uh, which means Do you want to spell it? Uh, yeah, it's X-E-P-E-R dot org is the official website of Temple of Set. So I remember coming across this, and uh, yeah, you can go to the website, but what struck me about this was that, I don't know, it just seemed, 
kind of goofy we'll go through some of the presidio stuff uh there's a lot of like some of it is like spooky some of it like this dude yeah by the very nature of like being like a prominent satanist like in the military uh that's like really part of the smokescreen of it where if uh you if he was like complicit in any of these these things like it's harder for them to stick because everything's tainted by the fact that he's like the most uh obvious sort of witch hunt target but Mm -hmm. you know when this sort of sinister organization was pointed out to me the the temple of set i looked into it and i realized that you can actually apply to this organization uh to become a member um you know it sort of presents itself as being elite in some way but it's one that you can sort of apply to um so i thought well you know i think that i can um I don't really know if this even was what you were trying to kind of suggest at the time or what, uh, if, but I just felt that, um, if this was some kind of like elite organization that was involved in all the sinister stuff and like getting in would somehow give me some level of access to like these sort of secret societies or or secret activities, Mm -hmm. then I felt strongly that I could get in and see what, uh, was going on and i did get in <laughs> um, <laughs> so you you basic you infiltrated the ground floor of the temple yes, of set and i successfully lied to them um so they weren't able to use my like dark magic of lying was stronger than theirs uh, i guess uh <laughs> because i just made up a bunch of stuff like based on my general knowledge of the occult my interests and like crowley and things like that i just, like, said a bunch of things I made up, like, fake rituals that I performed that hadn't happened, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. because there was this whole long interview process. It took a really long time. I had to write, like, this whole thing talking about, like, my Setian initiation. And one of the funniest things that I said was that, you know, I played set in a play uh, when I was, like, in fifth grade or whatever, which is true when we did our, like, ancient Egypt unit. That's one of the only, like, true facts that I put in there. You know, I threw in some stuff I knew about Satan, talked to my interest in Satan, blah, blah. Um, I got in touch with some guy, Maggie Stare, and I corresponded with him for a while, and he asked me some interview questions, um, you know, uh, some of them about Crowley, things like that, um, asking me to describe, like, the, the six principles of magic or something like that, uh, or, like, a step-by-step project of changing the world through will. Um, it was very strange, uh, yeah, and I remember him... Uh, he, we eventually did a phone interview and he was very odd, like, uh, very, like he kind of, I remember his voice as being kind of like that voice, much like, you know, Aquino's voice, like, uh, that's sort of unusual. Uh, yes. but, uh, yeah, he, um, was like a weird, like, uh, older dude, uh, who I guess was sort of managing the temple's day-to-day affairs. I talked to him and he was saying, you know, uh, when you do this stuff, like, one day your your life is just gonna go boom, you know, uh, there was a young man who was dating a nice young lady, and he was experiment, and he had a nice, uh, job, or whatever, he was experimenting with black magic, and one day, you know, it all fell apart, or whatever, and then, uh, but then he got a better job, and he, like, you know, some kind of stuff like that, like, trying to, like, sell me on, like, the self-improvement that was gonna come through, like, being a part of this organization, hmm. but, yeah, I mean, I showed you, uh, some of the stuff again sort of violating like the rules uh, of not sort of uh revealing any any of what was inside to uh 
you know, people on the outside, but I showed you some of the stuff we saw on the inside and, you know, they yeah. like their newsletter, things like that. Some of the, like the really cringy poems that they would be sort of sharing. Uh, it did really seem to me that there were teenagers mm-hmm. in the temple of set, like that there were like 16 year olds writing poems about like, you know, in the darkness, like I saw the figure <laughs> of set, like you know, he walked across the room, like I said, like, I accept darkness, set smile, or whatever, you know, like, just like... <laughs> yeah, 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 I saw some uh, of the literature, yeah. And the forms were, like, so embar- you know, they were just talking, people talking about doing rituals to, like, summon, like, anime characters, like, things like that, so, like, <laughs> you know, that's part of the reason why I think it's interesting to focus on Aquino himself, like, he's, a, he's an interesting figure. The temple, and, like, certainly, like, in terms of the rank-and-file membership... I wouldn't say that they're like plugged into any kind of uh, thing. It's 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 ironic yeah. that he, and part of the reason why I didn't stay in to just ride it out was well. On one hand, you have to you do have to do like a little bit of work to progress. You have to like uh, you know uh, correspond with a level two um, mm-hmm. an adept, I believe is the designation, mm-hmm. and then you have to you know get sort of recognized by an adept. Again, like, all the sort of contradictions and this sort of self-focused, like, self-initiation thing. You always, you know, you have to be recognized by an adept. Like, of course, he's not giving you the rank. He's just recognizing that you've initiated yourself, you know, this sort of... But anyway... Oh, yeah, the self-initiation um, fetish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, of course, you still have to... But anyway, so I didn't really want to go through the whole process of that. I did get a message from a guy who was like, Hey, I'd like to meet with you sometime to discuss black magic. I don't remember if I ever wrote back to him, but... Anyway, yeah, my time, uh, my two-year mutual evaluation period with them ran out, and I also didn't want to send them, like, money, because they mm-hmm. were trying to, like, charge, like, that's the thing, like, uh, it's interesting that he was upset about people buying priests. You can't buy a priest in the Temple of Set, but you certainly have to pay dues to maintain, yeah. like, their server, where Aquino hosts, like, all of his documents and his mom's poetry and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, so, Oh, we'll yeah. talk about his mom. We will. Yeah. Um... um Actually, no. But, so that's so you you never uh, you never went to any Setian gatherings, and you never met Michael Aquino, correct? No, I thought about it. I mean, uh, Maggie Stair, who I spoke with, he was like, "Well, maybe you'll get to meet uh, Aquino during the the if you come to a conclave." And I was like, "Maybe, like I maybe will get to meet him. Like I feel like I should get to meet, but." Um, yeah, I uh, didn't attend. I still have my Temple of Set membership card and my my white pentagram that they issued me. Um, <laughs> I, I have which seen is that. Like the, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think actually that might have been uh, that might have been the time frame when he was undergoing treatment for colon cancer. So he might have been sick at that time. And yeah. we should also mention maybe one of the only reasons we're talking about this so openly is because um, it's Ipsissimus Doctor Lieutenant Colonel. Aquino uh, transcended his mortal body either late last year or earlier this year, uh, a.k.a. he is dead now. Yes, but, Um, well, you know, we shouldn't not be afraid of retribution just because he's dead, because he has been known to attack people astrally. um, Allegedly. Yes, yes. uh, According to conspiracy theorist Max Spears, um, yes, he was was battling Aquino on the astral plane or something along those lines. Um, Yes. That sounds a little bit... Actually, Aquino himself, even in the Mind War paper, I'll read some excerpts later, is quite dismissive of sort of parapsychology things like remote viewing and ESP, and I'll explain why, and he almost drops a big hint as to maybe what was really going on with all that stuff. 
Um, he does believe in Kirlian or Kirlian photographs and stuff he like does. that and acupuncture. Yeah, but yeah, he definitely believes in some like that stuff. He definitely did think that he would re-manifest, and I, I, yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So, so uh, should we? Can I? Should I kind of start at a chronology of sort of who is Michael Aquino and what sort of things was he really up to in this world when he occupied it? Yeah, I guess. Okay. So Michael Aquino was born in 1946 in San Francisco, California. He was the um, he was the son of Michael Angelo Aquino Sr., who was an Italian immigrant and former army sergeant who served in World War II under Patton's army, and uh, and then I believe subsequently became an investment broker. And his mother was a very interesting personality, uh, Betty Ford, or Betty Ford Aquino, who um, came from an old money, high society, San Francisco family. Think Gettys, Crocker, Stanford, um, all of the, some of the same milieu of the people we talked about in the Kamala episode. Um, but basically uh, some of the oldest sort of haute bourgeoisie in San Francisco, um, Betty Ford's father, Dr. Campbell Ford was a notable surgeon. And I have been able to find, uh, the address, uh, listing for Dr. Campbell and his wife, Sophie Ford, whose lineage I've not been able to trace online yet, but he claimed on a Usenet thread years ago that she was also from a very old money, high society, San Francisco family. Um, and, uh, her, his grandmother, taught piano lessons to the Crocker children. And the Crockers were one of the four big railroad families, along with Stanford, and I'm forgetting the other two right now, um, that basically parlayed their uh, immense profits into uh, starting a bank, the Crocker Bank, which was uh, absorbed by Wells Fargo in the 80s. Um, And so, uh, by the way, uh, Michael Aquino almost never mentions any of this stuff when he does interviews, that he comes from a very wealthy, high-society San Francisco family. He often describes his childhood as sort of a uh, typical Eisenhower, kind of every American. Sometimes in some of these interviews, he doesn't even cop to growing up in San Francisco, even though I've been able to prove based on the blue book listing of his grandfather, that uh, Michael Aquino is living in the house uh, that his grandfather, the prominent surgeon, purchased uh, uh, roughly 100 years ago, um, which is in Russian Hill, sort of near Pier 39, a very, very nice, pricey neighborhood, and it's a big-ass house. So he, yeah. uh, and, and that's the house he... we Usenet postings of him sort of bragging about uh, how rich his, his um, grandma and his mom was were you know and how they would how his grandma would take him out shopping and she would just be like you know put it on credit or whatever and not you know use any kind of uh, <laughs> and how she went to germany and, and met hitler at like uh, oh yeah know. that is a very bizarre story so i think we'll we'll get to that in a second but maybe i should talk about I, I, maybe this is a good time to talk about his mother betty ford aquino uh no relation to betty ford the former first lady um and she's in fact much stranger than the first lady. So Betty Ford Aquino uh, was 
you know, born in San Francisco and basically was recognized at some point as a child prodigy. And this is around the first two decades of the 20th century. And her parents sent her down to where else? Stanford University um, to a child psychologist by the name of Lewis Terman, who was conducting a sort of longitudinal uh, gifted children's study at Stanford to try to identify um, the traits and, uh, you know, characteristics and I actually don't know what else. I haven't looked into, like, the nuts and bolts of the sort of experiments he was doing on children, Um, but it bears mentioning that Lewis Terman was a pretty passionate eugenicist. Yeah, Um, extremely, extremely passionate. Extremely Uh, passionate eugenicist. Enthusiastic eugenicist, yes. Absolutely. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, but California had a eugenics program in the early 20th century that um, sterilized, I I want to say, somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people who were considered mentally defective. Of course, a disproportionate share of these people were racial and ethnic minorities, not a big surprise there. Yeah, um, that was Lewis a big Terman, part of Terman's views as well. That certain yes. races of people were had inferior intellectual abilities. Yes, um, and it shouldn't surprise any of you, dear listeners, to know that the inventor of the modern um, Stanford Binet IQ test, which often has been uh, polemicized and used by racialist and white supremacist thinkers, was invented by none other than Dr. Lewis Terman, um, who borrowed it from the Binet test in France, brought over and added some different things to it, uh, but was very confident that you could scientifically reduce a human being's intelligence down to a single number, um, which I think a lot of people disagree with today for very good reasons. Um, But Basically, uh, Lewis Terman was a – he took on Betty Ford as a teenager and studied her for many years. And given the long-term nature of his study, I would assume kept in touch with her throughout the rest of his life. Um, And he actually wrote – he wrote the foreword for a book of poetry that Betty Ford wrote, I think, in in her late teens, but was never published until Michael Aquino found it in his attic decades later and then self-published himself. But it has the... It has some news clippings in this book and uh, and also an introduction from Dr. Lewis Terman, who really speaks glowingly about Betty Ford and how intelligent she is and how he hired uh, sort of other English professors to compare her poetry to the teenage poetry of people like Wordsworth and Yeats, uh, Yeats and uh, – and other poets like that, and how she basically, you know, uh, she she was up in the class with, like, the best of them, basically. It's interesting that she didn't go on to, because she eventually went to Stanford um, and graduated in three years, and I think went there when she was, like, 16 or 17. So she was quite young, and in one of the news clippings of the time that Aquino put in his book, she it's mentioned that she only had three years of proper schooling before entering Stanford, which I found for a rich kid in San Francisco at the turn of the century, even granted she was a female, but uh, don't you think that that's a little weird? Yeah, it's, that, it's I mean, she's weird. a genius, and she wasn't even in school. 
Yeah, well, I'm sure she was getting some kind of education. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure there were people who were mentoring her. Yeah. Yeah, I guess she might have had private tutors. It really yeah. kind of brings into question sort of what kind of household she was growing up in with this prominent doctor, Dr. Campbell Ford. And, um, and I think... Um, after she got out of Stanford, she went abroad, right? She went to Germany in the yes. early 1930s to study sculpture yes. with uh, George Kolbe, I want to say. Kolbe? George Kolbe, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, who was a who prominent was... German uh, sculptor um, yeah. who was very, he... whose work was very highly appreciated by the Nazis. Yeah, he did a lot of contracts for, uh, you know, the, the Nazis uh, and for others, but yeah, definitely for them. Um, and, uh, yeah, she studied with him and then before returning to the United States, um, yeah, so I guess she got in other kinds of art, uh, and then she was in public radio. Oh, yes. Um, uh, we, we cannot fail to mention that as Aquino has bragged about several times that Betty Ford went on to become one of the founding members of, uh, the Pacifica Foundation and KPFA Radio in uh, in Berkeley and KPFK Radio in Los Angeles, which were the first, I'm going to put heavy air quotes around this, fully listener-supported radio stations in America. Of course, they got their first foundation grants in 1951 from the Ford Foundation, um, and then over the years, like the Pew Charitable Trust and the Carnegie Endowment and every other sketchy uh, sort of capitalist uh, tycoon NGO foundation that you could imagine. Um, And that was founded by another Stanford graduate, Lewis Hill, who was, uh, just so happens, I'm sure this has nothing to do with his political thinking was the nephew of Frank Phillips, uh, a big-time oil magnate um, who founded the Phillips Oil Company, which is now today known as ConocoPhillips, um, which is still all over the place. And he was a devout pacifist going into, in the 1930s, and then when World War II began, um, unlike most kind of politically involved people who dropped the pacifism, he filed as a conscientious objector and uh, served out the war in like a civilian conservation corps job and then after World War II in the late 40s founded uh, KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Foundation. So it's just not not to ascribe anything super sinister to his pacifism, but it, I think when you find anybody that was super passionate about staying out of World War II after the invasion of the Soviet Union and after Pearl Harbor, that group, that coalition dwindled down to a small cluster of certain types of political tendencies, the biggest among which were fascists and Nazi sympathizers. So just kind of interesting. Um, Now, before I think we kind of go on, I want to like circle back because it'll be interesting when we talk about the Presidio scandal about Aquino's maternal grandfather, Dr. Campbell Ford. Um, And I found this buried in the November 1st, 1894 issue of the San Francisco Examiner. And, you know, when we're asking, like, what kind of childhood did Betty Ford have and what kind of upbringing did she have in this rich family um, with Dr. Campbell Ford, I just want to read you um, a little bit from this article. Um, Wanted to leave the baby. 
Dr. Campbell Ford tried to dispose of a newborn infant on Rincon Hill and is arrested. Uh, his story of the age of the infant contradicted by the surgeon at the receiving hospital. The strange maneuvers of a coop attracted a crowd on Rincon Hill about 10 o'clock last evening and finally led to a discovery of a peculiar set of facts and the arrest of a physician. The coop contained a good-looking, full-bearded man, which held in his arms a tiny bundle from which, at intervals, came a plaintive cry that could be distinctly heard by the curious crowd. Someone took the trouble to notify policeman Meriton who took the coop to police headquarters and turned its occupant over to Captain Douglas. The man proved to be Dr. Campbell Ford, whose office is at 734 and a half Broadway, and he carried in his arms a girl baby, which he said was but two hours old. In response to the questions of Captain Douglas, the physician said he had been called to a house in the southwest corner of Pacific and Stockton Streets about 7 o'clock in the evening to attend a young Italian girl who was about to be, uh, out to be confined. The baby which he held in his arms was born an hour after his arrival, and at the request of the mother, whom he took to be an unmarried woman, he had undertaken the disposal of the child. He called a coop and was driven to Sister Julia's sheltering arms on Harrison Street, but she refused to take the infant. From there, he was driven to several places on Rincon Hill, trying to find someone who would take the child, but was taken in charge by the policeman before he had accomplished his object. The child's father... The doctor displayed great agitation during the recital of the story, but insisted that he had no intention of doing anything criminal. He said a man who keeps a restaurant on the corner of Clay and Stockton Streets was present when the child was born and paid him $17 for his professional services. This man, he supposed, was the father of the infant. He declared that he did not know the names of any of the parties concerned. The hack man corroborated the statement in some particulars, but said he first went to the doctor's office. He drove the physician to the corner of Pacific and Stockton Streets, where someone brought the infant and handed it to the coop. He then drove to Sister Julia's and around Rincon Hill as directed. Placed under arrest. Captain Douglas thought the story decidedly suspicious and placed Dr. Ford under arrest. He was taken to the city prison where he was charged with attempting to abandon a minor child. The infant was placed in the care of the matron of the receiving hospital. It is a large, healthy-looking child with black hair and a decidedly Italian cast of countenance. Assistant Police Surgeon Barry said the infant was at least 15 hours old, but it was more probable that it had first seen the light 24 hours before it was taken to the hospital. About 7.30 in the evening, someone called up the receiving hospital by telephone and asked if that was the place to take deserted babies. The answer given was that the hospital was not a foundling asylum. Captain Douglas has ordered a full investigation of the case. So, um... Michael Aquino's grandfather uh, got arrested for stealing a baby in 1894. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish that we could find out, like, whatever became of that, or what happened with a child, like, what, like, I assume that he was let off. Um, yes. But I wonder, yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to say like, what actually occurred in that situation. It's just, it's it's very weird that he, Michael Aquino, would be accused of something so chillingly similar 90 years later, and uh, it's just, it's just a weird, weird thing, um, and, uh... It's like a Lovecraftian, like, generational Satanist type story, uh, you know, unfolding, or, uh, sort of knocking down the door there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and 
yeah. So basically, that did make us think a little bit about: is there something? a little bit more intergenerational. You hear that thrown around all the time, and usually I've never seen a ton of hard evidence to, like, substantiate a lot of the people that accuse of being intergenerational Satanists. But this is a little bit interesting um, in that, um, yeah, I mean, uh, that he was... He was caught running around with a baby that wasn't his, and then he has a daughter and sends her to this child genius study uh, kind of experimental program down at Stanford where a prominent eugenicist studies her for years, and then she goes to study sculpture with George Kolbe in 1930s Germany during the absolute peak of Nazism. Um, I remember reading there were some rumors that she had an affair with an SS officer. I think there were even rumors that her Michael Aquino's father was actually an SS officer. And, yeah. you know, that uh, Michael That's Aquino Sr. one of the few times you'll get him to mention his father. Uh, yeah. He yeah, mostly, like when he's he, sort of, dis, you know, dismissing the rumors that he is actually the son of an SS officer. Although yeah, I feel like if he were, he would be proud. Well, like, that's, funny, of course he would. As like, we'll see later. No, I'm not. But if I were, like, I would. He would 100% be bragging about it. Like, I mean, he went to an SS castle and did like a ritual in the black sunroom with like a Nazi dagger. It's not like he's a sh- like you know ashamed of being associated with Nazis. Uh, he absolutely so, is not. And it uh, almost you see him struggling to basically uh, uh, contain his enthusiasm when he talks about Heinrich Himmler or the Annenerba and the SS yeah. and uh, and this or dude, when he. Yeah, he loves it, Nazis. Very fascinating. And uh, we'll also mention just to circle around. I don't know. Like you said, we don't know the results of that investigation. Presumably he was let off. But I found one other old news clipping about uh, Dr. Campbell Ford, and this is his obituary, which for some reason was published in the Salt Lake Tribune on the 12th of February, 1934. And this is a short one. I'll read it quick, and you can draw your own conclusion. Retired Coast Doctor Found Dead in Bathroom, San Francisco, February 11th. Dr. Campbell Ford, 70, retired physician, was found dead with his throat slashed in the bathroom of his home here today, and police said he had apparently killed himself with his razor. They said there was a possibility the fatal wound may have been accidentally inflicted while Dr. Ford was shaving. The physician, before his retirement some years ago, developed the suture, which in surgery is known as the Ford stitch. So, um, he potentially committed suicide in the house that Michael Aquino ended up living in in his entire life uh, by slitting his throat with a razor. That's a very interesting obituary because, yet yeah, almost the irony of it, the fact that it mentions that he came up with this unique type of stitch and he was killed by, like, a severed vein or, you know, a, a sliced artery, is yeah. there's, like, a, an irony to it. It almost seems like some kind of thing that would happen in, like, a... a uh, horror movie or like a demonic possession horror movie type of thing like the dramatic irony or the the uh satanic irony of it but yeah yeah uh it's ve- yeah it's weird that the police said that there was a possibility that it was accidentally inflicted because what's the alternative that he did it on purpose like he committed suicide like by slitting his own throat 
Uh, well, they did say, I mean, they said it, apparently he killed himself, but then they left the door open to saying, well, maybe it was an yeah. accident, but very I, weird. I remember that Henry David Thoreau's brother, I think, died that way. Or, you know, people, yeah, I think that it was, like, more common than you would think to, like, kill yourself through straight razor shaving. But, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and, I mean, I guess if you're an old man, you got shaky hands, but... Even still, like, it's a very gruesome way to die, uh, and there's certainly, like, a very trenchant irony in it. Uh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think it's interesting. I don't know exactly if he's pinned down the exact date that his, uh, that, that his mother, Betty Ford, went to go study in Germany. I think, I don't know if it was maybe several years before Campbell Ford slashed his own throat or if maybe she went to Germany right after he did, maybe to distract herself from that very traumatic event. Um, But there is a story that that we found on an old Usenet thread, I believe, um, from or maybe it was a Google group said from like 2001 or 2002 where Michael Aquino was answering questions about his background and he recounts a story when his mother was studying in Germany his grandmother uh, Sophie Ford came to visit and actually no she must have been here earlier because the person they run into wasn't in power yet but they were eating at a restaurant and there was a large uh, table full of boisterous men in snappy uniforms uh, kind of laughing and causing a ruckus. And this is a very high society uh, Berlin restaurant. And uh, I guess Sophie Ford, being a lady of high manners, was absolutely disgusted by their behavior and marched over to them and basically told them to cut it out and get a hold of themselves. And the man who is sort of the leader of the table... Uh, kind of assuaged her and said, oh, I'm very sorry, ma'am. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be better. And that man was Adolf Hitler. <laughs> so, and Aquino told us yeah. this is like a funny story, and I guess uh, presumably his grandmother emoji that were like you know the early internet emoji that he used. It was like you know that very smiley face. Of, yeah, yeah, it was like a smiley face with a little hyphen as a, as a nose type yeah. of thing. Like it was very yeah, it was like uh, he said something like oh, but grandma thought politics vulgar, so she didn't recognize him. Like smiley face. It was very like oof. Yeah. yeah, and even just I think that indicates something about her class, uh, her her class consciousness that she found democracy vulgar. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, he, or, I mean, a politics. She found politics vulgar, but um, uh, yeah, you know, he seemed it, to be proud of the fact that she was so opulently wealthy, and that was even part of the story. I think part of the same thread. What he was he was talking about her. That she, you know, would just go out to the shops and and just buy all sorts of things extravagantly and just have them billed to her and, like, not even provide any, you know, credit card or documentation, obviously, like, her checks. Just say, like, oh, you know, put it on my my credit. Like, you know, it's just this grand dom, you know. He, he did around. call her a grand dom of, like, old San Francisco. And uh, and the fact that she taught piano to the Crocker children, um, who were, you know, one of the wealthiest families uh, in the city. And also, I think Aquino, in that same thread, mentioned being dragged to the Crocker Bank many times as a small child uh, because her that's where his grandmother banked debt. So 
I think some of that that endless money supply is somehow tied into the Crockers and and then of course all these connections back to Stanford of um, that his mother has uh, and then we're going to see with like the military industrial complex like coming about later um, and I mean when you think about it, like Stanford was formed by one of the other four big railroad tycoons of California um, Leland Stanford and you know this guy was no um, flower child let's say he was like a ruthless robber baron and uh, and then if you look at like the people that that started Stanford University you not only had um, Lewis Terman who was a prominent eugenicist but the first uh, I believe the founding president and chancellor of Stanford University was a man named David Starr Jordan and uh, he uh, he was a huge backer he and Terman were both huge backers of something called the Human Betterment Foundation which was a eugenics organization established in Pasadena California in 1928 uh, by E.S. Gosney um, and yes. basically uh, it primary according to Wikipedia it primarily served to compile and distribute information about compulsory sterile compulsory sorry compulsory sterilization legislation in the United States for the purchase for, for the purpose of eugenics um, yeah. and uh, and so that and if you read you know their pamphlets they're incredibly racist and incredibly spooky and I, I was going to actually I was going to mention earlier that the Nazis uh, became aware of the California eugenics program in the 1920s and 30s and actually studied it and built their eugenics program um, in a way it was sort of modeled off of the California experience. And of course, the Nazis sterilized, I think, somewhere around. 400,000 people, even before World War II, um, or euthanize them outright. Uh, but basically, uh, yeah, like much like how Manifest Destiny was sort of an inspiration to Hitler for his Lebensraum policy, and even like, you know, white supremacy, the idea of the, the Ubermensch and the Untermensch, um, these all, he sort of looked at the America, and particularly the American West, as a kind of laboratory to, uh, you know, build this new order that he wanted to build. So you can see that the Michael Aquino's family just, they're, they've, they're very close to the action, much more than he has kind of ever let on that, you know, I mean, he has, some of this information comes from him directly, um, but he always kind of downplays the, uh, you know, I, you'd think somebody that is as kind of smart and reads as much as he does and is kind of a quirky intellectual character would sort of bring these things up even as trivia as like, uh, like for example, I, I'm putting a pin now, um, so y'all gotta stay tuned, but it's a little funny to think that, uh, <clears throat> Lewis Terman, his son, uh, Frederick Terman, who became an engineering professor at Stanford University, is generally regarded as one of the two founding fathers of Silicon Valley, and... Like I said, we're going to put a pin on that for now. We'll come back to it. But that is very few degrees of separation from some of the most important players in the whole Stanford, Bay Area, military, industrial, intelligence, eugenics complex. <laughs> you know? Yes.
I guess, okay, so we can, now that we've, we've done a little bit on Aquino's, like, family, let's get in back to, like, his biography. Um, for some reason, he went to high school in Santa Barbara. Um, the family might have had, like, a second home down there, but then he ended up getting a scholarship to UC Santa Barbara and joined the ROTC program there, and... Then upon graduating, I believe it was in 1967, he immediately went into officer training and uh, I specifically requested to be deployed to Vietnam and see combat action. So he received special forces training and then um, PSYOP training and was assigned to uh, a PSYOP battalion and ended up going to Vietnam in 1969. Uh, and according to his telling the events, he, while going back to San Francisco in 1968, he stumbled upon Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan and started sort of hanging around this group and was very interested in their sort of spiritual outlook and uh, and everything they were doing. And then... Yeah. Um, uh, I remember reading in Aquino's... Uh, biography of Lave that he later wrote. Um, and I guess uh, you were telling me before we started recording that uh, he would send, because that was after their falling out, and he would send drafts of it to Lave and his wife, and they just wouldn't answer him. But in that biography of Lave, he talks about, uh, you know, he recounts meeting him for the first time. As he tells it, it was at uh, the premiere of Rosemary's Baby, uh, and which, yes, actually, uh, you're yeah. right. It was in, in was it in San it was in San, San Francisco, correct? I don't remember if it was, though it makes sense if it was, but yeah, LaVey had been a consultant on that movie, which I really think we should do, at some point we should do an episode about some of these movies, you know, because there's all sorts of interesting things going on. But anyway. Yes. Uh, so, and you know, that's another. And Anton LaVey, that, An- Anton LaVey was an advisor to Roman Polanski. Yeah. And, uh, on and later yeah. on, one of the people who. Uh, I found pictures of was involved with the Church of Satan and uh, participated in some of their rituals in San Francisco in 1968, went on to be one of the people that would stab Sharon Tate to death in the Cielo house in 1969 as part of the Manson murders. But again, we'll get back to that later. Polanski's film is very interesting because there's also the lesser known movie, The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp, uh, which has all sorts of like very spooky resonances looking back at it in, in hindsight. But anyway, uh, that's neither the point is that, yeah, Aquino kind of retells this whole story of being this kind of, like, you know, starstruck, wide-eyed kid, seeing LaVey for the first time with this kind of rock star energy and, you know, hearing about how he was a consultant on the film and kind of, you know, wanting to, to follow him and be a part of, be a part of this. Uh, so that's, that's how he tells it, you know, this very sort of, you know, moment of, of being kind of, uh, stricken by this figure sort of coming out of his his black limo or something like that, I really think is, mm-hmm. is uh, kind of, that's the image that I have in my mind. I think that's kind of what he uh, conveyed in the story. Yes, yes. And it, it's kind of interesting that uh, that Anton LaVey also, I believe, grew up in San Francisco and also inherited a very fancy, spooky house from his parents. Um, and I get, presumably, they never had any awareness or contact with one another until that premiere of Rosemary's Baby. Um, but uh, who can really say? But anyways, I guess that sparks an interest in 1966 uh, and he either joins, according to Mae Brussel, uh, Michael Aquino 
officially joined the Church of Satan while he was in Vietnam on a combat tour in 1969, which would be kind of interesting because I could understand in San Francisco, you just go down to the Church of Satan and join them. That's easy. But who were the pre-existing Church of Satan members in Vietnam that, uh, I mean, did he write them a letter and send them, like, a membership check? Like, how exactly did that work where he decided uh, while he was in country in Vietnam to become a Satanist, basically, you know, an official well, Satanist. I mean, this dude took it more seriously. He was more into this probably than Anton LaVey himself. Yeah. Uh, so he was really, really into it. He's the probably the person, and it, yeah, as you said, in American history, like, he may not be the most prominent Satanist or one of the most prominent Satanists, but he's, like, probably, I think you can confidently say the person who was most in to Satanism, uh, very yes. devoted to the idea, um, or this sort of dark esotericism eventually kind of evolved to Satanism, which isn't really, uh, Satanism is, is fundamentally satanic uh, by his own description, but anyway, um, his conception of Satanism, but uh, yeah, so... It's very spooky when you think about what Aquino was up to in Vietnam, like what he was thinking about. It's interesting because, yeah, the the Church of Satan is all about, you know, these uh, very spectacular kind of subversions of Christian ritual, you know, the crazy mm-hmm. stuff like the Zena LaVey's famous satanic baptism, like all these sort of provocative acts. And, you know, he what he was really into was the psychological operation. So, yeah, uh, yeah. He was, from the very beginning, he was obsessed with psychological operations and psyops. So I'm going to cite a few quotes um, from, from his, what he calls his automobiography called Ghost Rides, <laughs> which was published several years, self-published several years the, ago. The automo thing is because it's all about how he loves cars, like automobile, like, you know, automobiography. Yeah, like... Yes, and, and for a, a, an ostensibly middle-class posturing Eisenhower kid, he definitely had a very exotic taste in like muscly sports cars and Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Shelby Cobras and stuff that don't seem to conform with what would have been his modest salary as a military officer. Uh, so he probably had some family money kicking around to blow on big, big beefy cars. But anyways, um, uh, so this is from chapter two and He begins by saying, Richard Nixon sent me on an all-expenses-paid vacation in Indochina from June 69 to June 1970. For about half that time, parentheses, we won't discuss the other half, I was assigned as an HA command and control team leader of the 6th Psychological Operations Battalion, proponency for 3 Corps Tactical Zone, the quarter of South Vietnam including Saigon, of the 4th PSYOP Group, proponency for the entire country. As HA-1, I supervised several HE, Civic Information, and HB, Combat Propaganda Teams, working with the American and South Vietnamese units throughout, uh, throughout 3CTZ, as well as elements of, uh, of uh, MACV-SOG, M-A-C-V-SOG, uh, Regional and Popular Forces, Civil Operations, and Rural Development Support, um, uh, CORDS, uh, he says, the agency, capital A, the CIA, since it was not supposed to be there under its own name. Um, American and South Vietnamese special forces and anything where else the 6th, 4th, 2nd Field Force G5 or the great old ones that Joint United Public Affairs Office of the Department of State in Saigon might dream up. Um, so, uh, yeah, basically that's that's a very uh, jargon-laden um 
description of the units he was involved in. But we want to talk about, so he mentioned there that the other half of his deployment, the second half of his deployment, he is just basically not going to discuss. And he's been haunted by rumors and questions for years as to the level of his involvement in the Phoenix program, which as I mentioned was a vast counterinsurgency, assassination, torture, snitch, rape, murder program. Um, really perfect for a Satanist, if you think about it, uh, that was meant to target uh, the Viet Cong um, support networks and their supposed sympathizers all over uh mostly South Vietnam, but also into Laos and Cambodia. Um, And so I did listen to a podcast interview that he did several years ago where somebody directly confronts him on whether or not he participated in Phoenix. And he gives a very like, oh, well, um, I am uh, actually not at liberty to discuss these uh, classified uh, matters, so I'll have to defer your question. Um, But he said something along the lines of like, basically, yeah, but I'm not going to talk about it. And so we can assume that at least for six months he was involved in this program, which really really oversaw some of the most sinister, brutal war crimes of the the entire uh, Southeast Asian, the whole Indochina wars of the 60s and 70s, and also experimented in a lot of things. It, it experimented with mind control, with torture techniques, with uh, networked counterinsurgency technology. Um, they put little sensors out in the jungle uh, that, you know, would trip and then notify a computer and Saigon, and then you could go bomb it. It didn't work very well, but it was kind of the first attempt to uh, to sort of build an, a kind of internet-backed weapon system, like an early warning system for guerrilla attacks. Um, and they were just really... They, it was run by the CIA. For a time, it was run by William Colby, who later became CIA director in the 70s. Um, and, uh, yeah, by all accounts, Michael Aquino was involved in this. And we don't know exactly what he did, but we know about one specific operation that he conceived or co-conceived uh, because he brags about it from time to time. Operation Wandering Soul. And would you like to describe a little bit about uh, what Operation Wandering Soul is, Khaled? Yes, it's extremely spooky. Uh, The operation is spooky, and it's based on uh, sort of a Vietnamese folk belief, which really is pretty common. Uh, It's the idea, basically, that if someone dies, it's basically, you know, what things people still think now today about ghosts. You know, if someone dies in a horrific way, isn't buried properly, you know, uh, doesn't have the normal... Uh, ritual process like uh, in around their death and their dies violently or, or in a uh, you know um, in a gruesome way that basically they'll be doomed to wander the earth uh, in pain uh, in some kind of torment you know basically uh, a relatively transcultural ghost idea uh, insofar as anything is is transcultural um, but so this uh, you know it's interesting because I wonder. Um, how effective something like this would be in a different context. Because so there's definitely some sort of uh, idea that this would be more effective, you know, on these, uh, you know, sort of a primitive uh, Eastern peoples, maybe. But uh, and it, you know, may be true that like some of these beliefs have like greater currency than maybe they did in the United States at the time. But in any case, you know, it's basically uh, the idea of ghosts. And the psyop is this recording. Uh, that's be, uh, it's also known as ghost tape number 10. 
mm-hmm. and it was sort of played on uh, you know people's backpack loudspeakers or out of helicopters. And it's yes, basically, um, yeah, like, yeah, uh, basi- basically, uh, the way Aquino described it in one of his interviews a few years ago is that they would attach these incredibly powerful loudspeakers to a helicopter and then they would fly over jungle positions where they thought the VC were hiding during, uh, you know, either monsoons or thunderstorms and then they would they would fly up high enough so that the sound of the rotor blades wouldn't be noticed and then they would aim the speakers downward and they would play this tape they had developed which was ostensibly a dead Viet Cong comrade uh, being tortured by demons in the afterlife and uh, imploring his comrades to give up their their fight and go home to their family. So we're going to play a little bit of Ghost Tape number 10 right now, and you can get a little taste of uh, Michael Aquino's early PSYOP work. So here we go. Okay, so... As you can yeah. see, that's uh, an incredibly creepy tape to play. Yes. Uh, let's, like, just go through some of, like, what this is actually saying. Sure. Uh, this dude is, like, uh, you know, first there's sort of a, a, the voice of a, a little girl kind of saying, like, Daddy, Daddy, come home with me, come home. Daddy, Daddy. And there's sort of this ghost uh, father, you know, who can see his family, but he's invisible, and he says... Who is that? Who is calling me? My daughter? My wife? Your father is back home with you. My daughter? Your husband is back home with you. My wife? My body is gone. I am dead, my family. Tragic. How tragic. My friends, I come back to let you know that I am dead. I am dead. I am in hell. Just hell. It was a senseless death. How senseless. How senseless. When I realized the truth, it was too late. Too late. Friends, while you are still alive, there is still a chance you can be reunited with your loved ones. Do you hear what I say? Go home. Go home, friends. Hurry. If not, you will end up like me. Go home, my friends, before it is too late. Go home. Go home, friends. Uh, so, yeah. basically, uh, according to the soldiers who actually be playing this stuff, the response was... So, this the idea, as you can kind of see from the, the text, is that, or the, the dialogue, is that... You know, the idea is that they would go home, that they would uh, give up. But the response that they actually got is that people would shoot at them. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, assuming that they were able to hear the helicopter it was being played from or, or identify the source of it, they generally would just attack it. Yeah, and you can just imagine Aquino, like, feeling such delight at this idea, you know, the notion of manipulating, like, you know, this sort of spooky stuff that he was so into, somehow manipulating this, you know, dealing with ghosts, and, you know, it will be played around twilight time, you know, trying to... Uh, yeah, or during like, scary thunderstorms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there'd be, um, you know, lightning and, and thunder, and then this guy, you know, you can hear the... the the echo apparently according to aquino this was recorded or the recording was developed in a top secret kind of joint operations uh radio laboratory in saigon that was jointly run by the cia and the state department and they had all kinds of uh really high quality audio equipment there so that's where they developed it um i think it's it's kind of an open question whether this was properly um, connected to the Phoenix program, um, but the fact that I don't know, it it seems like maybe of all the Phoenix things, 
or Phoenix adjacent things that he could have participated in. This is maybe the one that he can kind of joke about and talk about because it doesn't involve necessarily any horrific war crimes. Um, I think he makes a point in his interview to say that this was one of the earliest examples of what would come to be uh, what would be later developed into his theory of mind war. And he says with no small amount of pride that he was able to actually get a, a certain number of VC irregulars to surrender their weapons and defect. Though, if you just go to the Wikipedia page, granted this part at the end isn't uh, doesn't have a citation attached to it, but I kind of wouldn't doubt it. It said that people who actually did buy into it and came out of hiding would just get shot down or bombed by the Americans. Yeah. But, yeah, if you actually follow some of the earlier citations from that article, you can come to this website. Sort of, again, the website itself is not really cited, but uh, it's a little bit more thorough. Um, and it has some testimonies from soldiers. It says, a Sea Wolf helicopter pilot who flew a number of PSYOP missions in 1968-69 recalled playing what he called the Howling Ghost Tape many times. He said that on about half of the missions, a PSYOP officer would fly with us and attempt to direct the mission. We dropped leaflets, magazines, and played the tape. Without exception, we drew fire each mission. This is one of the <laughs> primary objectives of the mission. When not flying the PSYOP missions, the pilot, Sea Wolf 57, flew mostly in support of the Navy SEALs. The Wandering Soul tape did not just appear full-blown in the Vietnam scene. There were earlier variations. One former operations officer the 10th PSYOP Battalion told me, I do not remember that Wandering Soul reverb tape at all. I know that the time of that tape follows my tour by one year. Our tapes were of Vietnamese funeral music and most of the standard fare sent by the group. He recorded Robert Brown's Fire from 1968 and used the demonic portion repeatedly in an endless loop. He mentioned that the tapes often enraged the Viet Cong and led directly to their death. Um, yeah, so... Interesting. So in a way, I mean, uh, it, it sounds like the... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, the whole idea of getting what, uh, the fact, whatever... actually, it made them uh, furious uh, and it made them reveal their positions, maybe, was the, the way it was practically being used. Yeah. So I, I see so many parallels here. And by the way, I think uh, maybe it's a testament to the... Uh, the the Marxist-Leninist uh, pedagogy of the North Vietnamese that they were able to uh, sort of inoculate the VC peasants um, against superstitions that would allow them to be manipulated. I mean, it, it's a very I mean, kind of racist stuff, like, it's, assumption. It reminds that, me a lot of the Project Bluebeam stuff that you would sometimes hear about, like, you know, this idea that uh, you're going to send, like, a voice into someone's head and be like, this is the voice of Allah, like, stop fighting, you know? Yes, like, yes. There and, were a lot of rumors yeah. that they that this that type of technology was deployed in both Gulf War One and the second Iraq War. Um, I think where, I don't know if it was ever substantiated, but there was this, this rumor came up both times that they had some kind of audio weapon that could beam the voice of Allah into the soldiers' heads and, at bare minimum, scare the shit out of them uh, in advance of, you know, an overwhelming, like, American air assault. Um, but definitely would be... It's interesting that yeah, those things, those ideas reemerged later when, like, Michael Aquino was on the ground in Vietnam doing this very early manifestation of mind war. Yeah, or even, you know, you even see it today in sort of the idea of people being kind of, like, targeted individuals, like the, the idea that the government's putting voices into their heads, things like this. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, the, the obvious response, even if you could beam something like this directly into someone's head, like, would they, you know, is someone so naive to assume that, especially if they're in, like, an active military situation, are they so naive to assume, like, oh, you know, I'm hearing, and if it's this canned kind of audio, you know, it's just so, yeah. 
like, yeah, it's, uh, there's a certain condescension that's an inherent in it, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. for, uh, like, uh, I, I feel like people aren't worried about countering this type of weaponry being used, like, on Americans or something like that, you know, civilized Western people. It's just, like, this idea that, oh, we can manipulate their, like, naive superstitions and, like, make them think that Allah is talking to them or something like that, or that Absolutely. a ghost is calling, you know, uh, but obviously, like, it does have an effect, like, it is still, like, it, it certainly has a psychological impact, but, yeah, it's a thing. It's funny with these sort of PSYOP operations where you can say, oh, it's successful because it had some sort of psychological reaction, like a lot of things do. Uh-huh, uh, yeah, yeah, in a sense, people, I mean, you know, if you think getting... about it, it seems almost a more realistic reaction that it might infuriate some of the regular soldiers uh, who, I don't know, maybe maybe saw it as like an insult to their yeah. sort of traditions. And of course, it would, yes. it, which actually syncs up a little bit with his sort of pr- whole provocative persona and challenging Christianity and like kind of triggering evangelicals in the 80s, yes. which I think, if you look at his appearances on Oprah and Geraldo, he is kind of eating it up. Like he loves being on there and scaring the shit out of all these Christians. Uh, yeah, I he really think does. That, yeah, and it would make perfect sense, you know, it dovetails very well with. I actually kind of think that at that, I do think kind of at that point, like he was starting to be like uh, a little bit worried. I, I felt like the pressure was on him a little bit at that point when he was like That's on that true. stage and there. Yeah, <clears throat> but I, I felt he was sweating a little bit in that situation. But certainly at this time, like this was the height of like his very early enthusiasm about Satanism and yeah. like the idea and like the ideas that would just, you know, coming to full flower, like, in his later thought, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where, and so this, this is right, right up his alley, something that's yeah. right up his alley. And the last thing I would bring up about Operation Wandering Souls is that I kind of saw it as a potentially instructive example of how, uh, domestic psyops inside of the United States and specifically coming out of California um, in the late 60s and 70s would sort of come to function um, basically by using um, cutting edge or you could say occulted technology that the public was generally not aware of and this could include radio waves, radar, LSD, uh, techniques of group encounter therapy like EST and certain cult uh, techniques and even elements elements of Maoist uh, pedagogy and group organization that, like, MIT and Stanford were studying, in addition to electronic surveillance and networked intelligence databases, both private and public, like ARPANET being a huge example, um, that would basically mimic supernatural forces and prey upon existing superstitions and cultural sentiments to uh, psychologically manipulate targets in a much deeper way. And I think... Like, when you get to the the 70s and the 80s, like, when Stanford is doing all this research into parapsychology and ESP and remote viewing um, that was connected, that research was connected to both the CIA and the military, that I'm... I can't say I'm 100% settled on sort of this hypothesis, but my I'm definitely leaning towards the idea that a lot of this remote viewing stuff that Stanford was doing was contemporaneous with the development of things like GPS and satellite 
imagery and the internet and all of these other things. And if you think about the world we live in today, uh, those are the technologies that came out of Stanford that completely transformed our world. And in a way, they just like I think we talked about on the first episode, in a way, they almost do function like magic. I think if you had told somebody in the 60s about everything our phones and GPS and satellites can do today, it would sound almost ma- sound quote unquote magical. So um, and that, but then you know, uh, putting the smoke screen of like woo woo over it, um, whether it's Aquino's kind of black magic or it's more new agey hippie kind of a ESP or all, all manner of things like that, um, you could because one thing a lot of people don't know is that the Soviet Union was also intensely interested in, well, both military communications technology and certain aspects of parapsychology. Um, and they were doing their own experiments with like telepathy and ESP and remote viewing. And I have to imagine that at least some of that was because they knew that people in California were doing it. And in fact, there were exchanges during the detente era between the Esalen Institute and certain Soviet scientists who shared notes, basically. So the question, I think, is it, it, it's uh, it, I can't quite answer it fully right now, but I think we'll talk about it you know, down the road, is like to what extent was even the whole research of like, uh, you know, ESP, remote viewing and telekinesis and all these things, to what extent was that a PSYOP? to sort of misdirect or confuse the Soviets uh, while we were building what would become the Internet. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I am more inclined to say that they're things that belong to kind of the same category or the same sort of geostrategic purpose, or it kind of reminds me of, you know, if you think about it from the point of view of occult organizations, uh, I'm reminded of, like, something that Aquino's wife, Lilith, said on her uh, discussion of her order within the Temple of Set, the Order of the Vampire, with a Y, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, kind of talking about how, you know, real vampires don't drink blood, you know, uh, real va- vampires don't do this stuff, you know, like, this is not part of the sort of vampire craze that was happening, like, whatever, when she wrote this, like, in the 80s or 90s. Um, it like uh, you know it's something that's like we're the real vampires like in the same way that the temple of set is like we're the real satanists i see it as kind of similar where there's like sort of infighting amongst these guys where uh you know maybe uh the internet is a more effective form of the same practice of remote viewing that other people try to get at in different ways so maybe that could be deployed in some respects as a smokescreen but I don't know, I feel like it's part of the same, like, cluster of experimentation. I think, actually, like, the first paragraph from the original Mind War white paper that Aquino wrote, like, in in the 80s, is, Mm -hmm. uh, like, a good sort of uh, way to conceptualize that, because he starts off talking about this article that some dude wrote, uh, Alex, uh, it, Colonel it's actually John not, it's not just some dude. It's, it's Lieutenant Colonel John Alexander, who was one of the principal officers involved in operation Stargate and other associated programs. Ah. Basically, if you've ever seen the movie, the men who stare at goats, which is a total limited hangout, by the way. Um, <laughs> I believe that John Alexander and general Albert Stubblebine were kind of the two main military officers who became very fascinated with like ESP, and paranormal and parapsychology and and potentially weaponizing it. Yeah, so I guess that dude wrote an article for the military review called The New Mental Battlefield, Beam Me Up Spock. 
And Aquino said, uh, you know, his article uh, in support of psychotronics, intelligence and operational employment of ESP, was decidedly provocative. Criticism of research in this area, based as it is on existing frontiers of scientific law, brings to mind the laughter that greeted the Italian scientist Spallanzani uh, Spallanzani in 1794 mm-hmm. when he suggested that bats navigate in the dark by means of what we now call sonar. Uh, if we if they see with their ears and do they hear with their eyes, went the joke. But I suspect that the U.S. Navy is glad someone took the idea seriously enough to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you I know. think. Yeah. And if I can read, um, I highlighted the second paragraph in this because I feel like it's a big fat kind of clue, at least to what maybe Aquino's perspective was, but also to my theory that. Basically, some of this was maybe a cover um, for... Uh, I'll just read it. Here we go. So <clears throat> he goes on to say, Psychotronic research is in its infancy, but the U.S. Army already possesses operational weapon systems designed to do what Lieutenant Colonel Alexander would like ESP to do, except that this weapon system uses existing communications media. It seeks to map the minds of neutral and enemy individuals and then change them in accordance with U.S. national interests. It does this on a wide scale, embracing military units, regions, nations, and blocks. In its present form, it is called psychological operations or PSYOP. So, I mean, he's kind of speaking broadly about PSYOP there, but I thought in terms of specifically about satellite technology, the proto-internet, and things of that nature, and any kind of maybe classified psychotronic weapons that they have that use radio waves and frequencies to inflict their effects uh, rather than any kind of ESP, he's saying basically... You know, uh, the Army already possesses operational weapon systems designed to do what these guys want ESP to do, except that it uses existing infrastructure and, like, real material technology that we already have or are in the process of building. Um, So I I think that's a little – he's, like, showing maybe his cards a little bit there. Um, But let's dive deeper into uh, Mind War because we've already covered how he founded the Temple of Set in 75. He had a a number of positions in the military, kind of bounced in and out of reserve um, status in the 70s and went back to grad school, um, gobbled up a couple graduate degrees and maybe I think even his PhD, which was about the neutron bomb uh, in the late 70s. But then in 1980, he writes this white paper called uh, From PSYOP to Mind War, The Psychology of Victory. And it's co-written with uh, then, um, I believe, Colonel Paul Valley, um, who actually went on to become a very constant presence post 9-11 as a Fox News contributor. And a uh, and he eventually became a general and then retired and became a sort of regular presence uh, cheerleading for the Iraq war in the early 2000s and, you know, perhaps was executing his own form of mind war on the American public. Uh, and I guess because he didn't have the cloud of the Presidio abuse scandal that he was able to, you know, go to the highest ranks of the military. And I think he was either a brigadier or a major general. Um, but but anyways, um, they they co-wrote this white paper. It's, it's not very long, but I would say the 
The uh, one of his major points about it is that uh, is that they lost the Vietnam War uh, not because, as he says, because we are outfought, but because we were outsyoped. Our national will to victory was attacked more effectively than we attacked that of the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong, and perception of this fact encouraged the enemy to hang on until the United States finally broke and ran for home. So our psyop failed. It failed not because its principles were unsound, but rather because it was outmatched by the psyop of the enemy. Uh, the army's efforts enjoyed Im- some impressive successes, but our own psyop did not really change the minds of the enemy populace. Think of Operation Wandering Minds, nor did it defend the U.S. populace at home against the propaganda of the enemy. Presumably, he's referring to the anti-war movement. Um, the, and he says, the lesson is not to ignore our own psyop capability, but rather to change it and strengthen it so that it can do precisely that kind of thing to our enemy in the next war. Um, better hardware is nice, but by itself it will change nothing if we do not win the war for the mind. So, um, yeah, so it, it sounds like he's saying it's a, it's ironic that, like, the hearts and minds strategy was a, a, a sort of a meme during the Vietnam War within the U.S. military. But I think what he's saying in this critique is that it basically it, it was operating in kind of an outmoded uh, theoretical framework of like what PSYOP should be used for and was just sort of dropping pamphlets and occasionally doing a spooky ghost thing, but not really, you know, uh, waging a full scale mind war against the Vietnamese population to sort of, you know, psychologically win them over to our side. Yes. Uh, there's definitely some, in the Mind War paper, there's definitely some, like, uh, paranormal flirtations, you know, talking about using atmospheric electromagnetic activity, air ionization, and extremely low-frequency waves to make people more receptive to ideas and things like that. He uh, does say that at the very end, and he, he cites a few examples uh, of atmospheric electromagnetic EM activity. Um, yeah. Which he says, uh, yeah, he he mentions that um, sunspot eruptions and gravitational stresses, uh, which distort um, the Earth's magnetic field, um, can make humans more or less disposed to the consideration of new ideas, and mind war should be timed accordingly. (laughs) So, but that's fucking interesting because that's like a really like classic occult idea. Basically, saying using like astrological uh, astrology, yeah, like which is part of any type of ritual is the timing. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, so of course so he's claiming a he's claiming almost a, basically a material scientific basis for uh, you know uh, kind of the same type of yeah. strategic thinking of like Hitler consulting his astrologist before deciding when to invade a country. Yeah, basically, yeah, he's saying that it's the same thing as saying like, well, this is how to be a real vampire. He's saying like, this is the way to really read minds. This is the way to you know, and uh, yeah, it's. Um, it's, yeah, very much, like, you can definitely see the influence of these ideas that, that he subscribes to uh, in, in this paper, for sure. And, I mean, mm-hmm. he would later characterize, like, ba- the PSYOP, as we talked about on this show in the past, the PSYOP is basically, like, a lower black magic working. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely conceived in that way. I mean... What is, like, Operation Wandering Soul, if not, like, a, a summoning? Like, the if you're listening to the audio, it's very similar to this kind of, like, EVP-type phenomenon. Like, the, uh, 
you know, the way that it's put together. It's uh, one could maybe even compare it to like a Kenneth Anger type of recording or some of like Zena LaVey's sort of uh, experimental sound work with a. Uh, you know, Radio Verwolf or whatever, Werewolf, yeah, you know, Radio Verwolf. Yeah, and yeah. Kenneth Anger uh, is also plugged into all these people, of course. Uh, uh, yeah. And... And 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 it's it's interesting to think of like his his sort of experimental movies also in a way as kind of a ritual, uh, audiovisual uh, kind of initiatory kind of you know work of quote unquote art. Um, that yeah, yeah. Um, in so, a way, I think that the way he's being cute on some level is. I think that there might be something to what you're saying, but on some level, I think that the way he's being cute is almost in reverse. Where he's sort of, uh, you know, sort of using this jargon and the, his intellect to kind of obfuscate, like, what he really is like, deeply into, you know, he's kind of in a way defending this idea of, I'm sure, that, like, at the time people were like, uh, like, ESP, you know, things like, but he's in a way saying, like, this is the thing about the sonar, you know, people laugh on yeah. this idea, but... And I think that this is a principle, really, that we even apply in this podcast, you know, not laughing off some of these ideas that that might sound uh, outlandish. But, um, totally, you know, I think, totally. yeah, I think yeah. that this is kind of, he's sort of saying, like, well, but let me tell you, like, using my greater way of, of explaining it, my greater way of contextualizing it, that, you know, it's, yeah, it's similar to a lot of... Uh, uh, I, I think I think you're right down. in that. I mean, I think kind of the <clears throat> like the the meta uh, text or the I don't know the macro of what he's saying is still very rooted in occult thinking and the kind of deeper spiritual kind of warfare ideas that he had developed uh, as a Satanist and as a Setian, but then kind of the micro is and here's how we can utilize actually existing technologies to affect this kind of... Ma- to, to sort of operationalize these magical concepts in the real world and achieve real results. Yeah, and I think that... Yeah, he's basically trying to teach the U.S. military to use magic, basically. And I think that that's uh-huh. sort of how he conceives himself. I was wondering, like, in Ghost Rides, I kind of didn't really look into this part, but does he even talk about, like, what drew him to want to join the military in the first place? Uh, part of it, he doesn't. Mm, he talks about it a little bit in Ghost Rides. He also talks about it in the interview that I listened to from a couple years ago. And I think one part of it, and I, I think he's being a little coy and and not telling the whole story. But uh, you know, I think it, one of the things was that he was an Eagle Scout. He was like a really enthusiastic Boy Scout and then became, I think he was even, he was something like the the national leader of like the Eagle Scout Honor Society or something like that. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm looking at like his CV here. Uh, I don't know if he's, yeah, there probably is maybe a little bit of obfuscation involved there, but in a way it does make sense because scouting is like all about initiation. It's all about progress. You know, it's all about like the same it has that same structure, um, yeah. You know, and the the degrees and things like that. It, yeah. There's this. It makes sense in a way. Uh, maybe he makes he, that parallel himself uh, between like occult initiation and uh, advancement, and it makes it it, it do- dovetails back with the whole like grievance with Anton Lavey selling, uh, you know, the the ranks and the Church of Satan. Um, yeah, yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. It, he was. 
Uh, yeah, and it might have something to do with his father being um, uh, being a World War II veteran. Might have encouraged him to join the military, though. Uh, it it seems it seems a little incongruous given his fascination with the Nazis that he would be inspired by his father's service in Patton's army. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. You know, fighting the Germans. Uh, he seemed to have a lot more sympathy for the. Um, for the German side, or uh, at least it doesn't have many bad things to say about them. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, yeah, I don't you're know. you're a nerd and you like to collect medals. I mean, the, the pentagram thing that I got, it's a, like a medallion. It's a medal. Like, you know, it's like the, it's the same thing. Like the idea of collecting these medals, you know, and as you go up in grades, you get a pentagram of a different color, you know, the... The idea of, like, collecting these little things, collecting these SS daggers, I don't know. Yeah. It makes, it makes sense. <clears throat> and there's also the question of, like, in his interview, they, they asked him about his religious upbringing, and he claims that he was not particularly brought up in any religious tradition. I guess his father, obviously, was an Italian Catholic, but wasn't particularly devout, and his mother um, was... Uh, also not raised up in any specific religion, which I find an interesting blank spot given, you know, her rich family and Lewis Terman and her father stealing babies and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that that Betty Ford Aquino joined the Temple of Set. Really? Like, she was in the Temple of Set. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but he kind of makes it sound like, they asked, like, what did your parents say when you decided to become a Satanist? <laughs> like, and um, he says, oh, well, you know, they uh, they looked upon it as uh, slightly unusual, um, and they had uh, parental concerns that this may affect my military career, but they uh, supported my choice. And, you know, just kind of brushes it off. Like, they were like, oh, whatever, Mikey, do what you want. Um, but... Like, then the mother joined him, so she was clearly, like, kind of down with it. I don't think the father ever did. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if there was something that he, like, prevailed. Because, I, I mean, people sometimes, often, like, try to get their, their parents to join their religion, like, out of some sort of uh, desire to save them or something like that. You know, like, uh, trying yeah. to make your mom, like, come on, like, say Lila Hilala, like, on her deathbed or whatever. Like, <laughs> um... I don't know. I don't know. All thing, I know but... is he also he also mentioned, which was interesting, that his parents were married. They looked around for a church to get married in, uh, but most of the churches were distasteful to his mother. So they ended up getting married in a Swedenborgian church, which I guess was uh-huh. some kind of minor Swedish Christian offshoot. Um, um, the Swedenborgianism is extremely sus, actually, and it has a connection to... Uh, Freemasonry and this oh. sort of like you know esoteric uh, Christianity that uh, you know was through, like that kind of sparked uh, you know earlier on in sort of the uh, like I guess he he was mostly active during like the the 18th century like the mid to late uh, 18th century yeah. Um, but yeah he kind of had revelations and stuff uh, yeah like uh, it's it's peculiar. It's a peculiar choice because it was a, it's a very like eccentric form of Christianity. Uh, you know, yeah. he, he had very eclectic views and it was definitely like something that helped to ignite kind of the, the occult exploration of the 19th century that we sort of talked hmm. about in episode two. Interesting. Um, 
I, I'd, I'd actually never heard that much about them. I have no idea of what their footprint in San Francisco was. Now, of course, San Francisco and California in general were hotbeds of spiritualism and theosophy and various forms of occult or new Christian movement kind of teachings uh, going back to, like you said, like the 19th century. Um uh, but yeah, it was just an interesting point uh, of, of note that she, yeah, like most churches were kind of repugnant to her and they got married in the Swedenborgian church and then she eventually joined the Temple of Set. I think she died in 1985. So she, somewhere between 75 and 85, she joined uh, his his temple. Um, so... That's a fun kind of fact about Emanuel Swedenborg before we uh, move on from him was that he drew like a, a flying machine, uh, hmm. which, you know, people have pointed to as, you know, you, I think you can maybe guess what what this flying machine resembles. A flying um, saucer, perhaps? Uh, yes, a little bit of a sort of ovular, yes, it's a very, very UFO, very UFO-esque uh, image. Um, yes. Interesting. Uh, the operator would sit in the middle and paddle himself through the air. Yeah, you can you can find a picture of it online. But yeah, I, that that is interesting because Aquino has played coy over the years, especially in his later interviews on various obscure podcasts, um, and uh, where he. He often alludes to, and he alludes to it in Ghost Rides and a number of, like, weird fictionalized kind of stories um, about being taken to Hangar 17 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where they kept the UFOs, like the crashed spacecrafts. Mm-hmm. And he's mentioned, I mean, he does have a space intelligence certification. He, I think, worked for Space Command for a while and was a sort of advisor to the highest levels of, like, U.S. military space research um, in both the 80s and the 90s. So, uh, that, yeah, but he, he played, he's very kind of, you don't know if he's really just fucking with you or not. Uh, yeah, I would imagine maybe to some extent. Of, we definitely should, uh, on this podcast, uh, I'm going to mention it now, uh, but, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, his book, We Break the Sword, which is oh, yeah. one of the most, like, outrageous things that he's ever put his name to, which is basically a fanfic about the Nazis using mind war to peacefully win World War II. <laughs> uh, basically, yeah, the, like, it, it, the Nazis just decide, like, oh, you know, instead of doing all the stuff that we actually did, like, what if we use mind war? And, uh, you know, uh, relatedly to that, uh, it's a, a, a plot element of the book is that they have... Uh, this device that actually is sort of a, a rumored thing. It's it's unclear like how uh, real it was, but it is one of the sort of rumored Nazi wonder weapons, uh, Diglaka. Uh, oh, Diglaka, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of similar uh, type of sort of UFO device that obviously you know had some fascination with this stuff, like the Nazi Antarctica, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, myths and all the things about their sort of occult experiments, both real and and mythologized. He obviously had a serious fascination with it. Hence his desire to go off to the SS castle and sort of initiate, um, you know, his new uh, knighthood of Satanism or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. And before, I'll just drop a little more on Mind War before we move on to uh, his, his, uh, his activities at Vevelsburg in 1984. But um, what I, I wanted to say is that he also applies mind war uh he he essentially implies that uh the u.s media should be used 
to be sort of the tip of the spear of Mind War. So I'll read this little passage here. Um, To this end, Mind War must be strategic in emphasis, with tactical applications playing a reinforcing, supplementary role. In its strategic context, Mind War must reach out to friends, enemies, and neutrals alike across the globe, neither through primitive battlefield leaflets and loudspeakers of PSYOP, nor through the weak, imprecise, and narrow effort of psychotronics, but through the media possessed by the United States, which had the capabilities to reach virtually all people on the face of the Earth. These media are, of course, the electronic media, television and radio, state-of-the-art developments in satellite communication, video recording techniques, and laser and optical transmission of broadcast make possible a penetration of the minds of the world such as would have been inconceivable just a few years ago. Like the sword Excalibur, lol, um, we have but to reach (laughs) out and seize this tool, and it can transform the world for us if we have the courage and integrity to enhance civilization with it. If we do not accept Excalibur, then we relinquish our ability to inspire foreign cultures with our morality if they then desire moralities unsatisfactory to us we have no choice but to fight them on a more brutish level okay that's terrifying <laughs> like, uh, uh, he's so, um, like he's just such a like a dnd nerd like the whole thing about like excalibur it just like uh but yeah uh, but then mixed with basically the, some yes. like hardcore nazi like uh yeah you know it's that's like the that's the you know the uh the uh you know very careful mixture that is just so unique to to uh Aquino. he's like just so absolutely goofy but also so like incredibly sinister yeah. uh it's just yeah i mean he's yeah the gift that keeps on giving uh, yeah yeah uh there's there's a little more here that i just want to uh read to sort of drive this point home um and it's it, it, you know it's specifically dealing with how he's basically saying that mind war needs to target domestic american audiences and the, the audiences of our allies and our adversaries. It needs to basically be a global PSYOP campaign. So he says, Mind War must target all participants if it is to be effective. It must not only weaken the enemy, it must strengthen the United States. It strengthens the United States by denying enemy propaganda access to our people and by explaining and emphasizing to our people the rationale for our national interest in a specific war. Under existing United States law, PSYOP units may not target American citizens. That prohibition is based on the presumption that, quote, propaganda is necessarily a lie, or at least a misleading half-truth, and that the government has no right to lie to the people. The propaganda ministry of Goebbels must not be a part of the American way of life. Quite right. And so it must be axiomatic of mind war that it always speaks the truth. Its power lies at its ability to focus recipients' attention on the truth of the future as well as that of the present. Mind War thus involves the stated promise of the truth that the United States has resolved to make real if it is not already so. So he's saying, like, even if it's not the truth, like, we are going to make it the truth, and therefore it's okay because it's true. Yes, which is what, (laughs) like, which... And that's what magic is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's transformation of reality. Yeah, uh, you know. Through will. Um, oh, yeah, yeah the last thing, will. just the yeah. one sentence, because we didn't mention it earlier, like the one sentence de- definition that he gives of mind war is mind war is the deliberate, aggressive convincing of all participants in a war that we will win that war. So, yeah, it's like a it's like a 360 degree total psyop campaign against everybody involved that manages kind of through, like you said, magical means to psyop everybody into believing 
that we are going to, that our victory is in, uh, our victory inevitable. is inevitable. Yeah. yeah. And it's that's like a secret, that's, basically. Uh, <laughs> yeah, power of positive thinking. Yeah. Um, it, uh, okay, so yeah. so clearly, um, clearly, this white paper, though he claims was kind of just a minor curiosity and didn't, wasn't that big a deal, it clearly must have impressed somebody because in 1981, when Ronald Reagan becomes president, Michael Aquino gets assigned to go overseas to Europe to become an advisor to the supreme command of nato and of course you could go we could do uh, we probably will do an entire episode on nato and basically how it absorbed huge numbers of nazi generals and officers and ss war criminals into its hierarchy after uh after world war ii and that these people played very big roles in um in you know the management of the North Atlantic you know alliance throughout the Cold War and so Michael Aquino who at this point I think has we could definitely say a, a pretty major fascination with the Nazis um, goes over there and then uh, would you like to describe what he does there in 1984 at a certain castle? Yes, he went into basically a castle that was built for the SS. Again, I No, it was it was a, it's an, a medieval castle, but it was taken over by Heinrich Himmler. Oh, right? okay. I really did think that uh they had like designed it specifically. Well, they certainly remodeled it because there yes. is like a black sun room mm-hmm. uh that they and that was the one where he did uh his his Bevelsberg working. Um and yes, uh, so basically, like using an SS, really, it became like an initiatory thing for the Temple of Set, where he uh, received a new word. I forget what I think the word was Runa. It was something like that. It was something where he uh, experienced some new uh, word for initiating. I think I I think it was the Order of the Trapezoid that uh, I think so. He you know uh, had this sort of experience of. But anyway, yeah, he went there. It's. He waved this SS dagger around. I think that, yeah, like, uh, I'm not sure if you, like, what you see, like, I, th- I don't think that it actually was recorded, like, uh, no. the Vevelsberg working. Well, not but you publicly. can definitely see, like, video of him. Uh, it's not difficult to find, like, video of him waving the dagger around, like, in, uh, you know, the castle and everything like that. And, yeah, I mean, he basically thought that, you know, always, like, uh, he would always say that the... Ideology. He would always be, uh, you know, verbally or, or superficially like opposed to the the ideology of Nazism that we're familiar with. But he obviously believed that there were like uh, occult principles uh, in sort of certain Nazi beliefs that were uh, true and of of serious value, and that we could really yeah. constructively learn from. Um, and yes, yeah, so this is. Yeah part of the yeah, reason why I, I like think... <clears throat> even though they were wrong in some other ways at least he would tell you uh you know out loud uh they really had a lot of stuff figured out in terms of of magic um and that's why it was good to go to this uh this castle and do this yeah and he said i was listening to some of may brussel's excellent 1987 episodes that she did about Michael Aquino and according to her she I wasn't able to find the source for this but she quoted him as saying that the purpose of the Vevelsberg working was to quote recreate an order of knighthood for the followers of Satan it's not about communism or anti-communism it's that Satan is going to win and we are part of this operation 
Yes. Cool. And, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, yeah, this became a big part of the Order of the Trapezoid, which was something that really had traveled through uh, the history of the Church of Satan. It had existed within the Church of Satan and then kind of been uh, reordered. You can actually read, if you go to trapezoid.org, you could read, like, a whole thing about the history of the Order of the Trapezoid, its evolution. And, yeah, he talks about the Vevelsberg working. The album that is used today for the Order of the Trapezoid, which is a very, like, Germanic runic thing with, like, this kind of hammer, um, was conceived in the Vevelsberg Castle, uh, Westphalia, Germany, during the Vevelsberg working on October 19th. Uh, and, you know, he gives the date in the Setian calendar as well as the, <laughs> as well as CE, you know. So he says, uh, you know, it was like 17, the year 17 slash uh, 1982 in the Hall of the Dead. Um, it was sketched on a desk in the Vevelsberg caretaker's office when I returned to the Valhalla keys to him following the working and was drafting in precise mathematical proportions on the table in Eva Braun's tea room in the eagle's nest <laughs> at Ober Salzburg. I could have done the drafting before them, but wanted the environment to be magically appropriate. There were few tourists milling around in the main room of the eagle's nest, but as it turned out, I had the wood panel tea room to myself. Wow. Wow. So uh, cool. So cool, Michael. Yeah. Um, really uh, rad. Anyway, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I, we do, so we don't know exactly what he was doing in his capacity as NATO attache in the early 80s besides doing SS dagger rituals. And yeah, Heim- we don't Heimer know Kimmer's actually castle. what the substance. It seems like almost he was running around while there were tourists there, like doing this magical stuff like, uh, you know, to tr- and then running into Ava Braun's tea room to draw out this bizarre glyph. Um, I would say but, that yeah, it's I possible wish we had, that he like, had the actual text of the ritual, or like you know the. Um, uh, I would say, in, given his uh, given his predilections, that he probably made some very high up friends in the West German government who allowed him to have you know free reign in these places. Yes, um, and uh, yeah, like uh, he. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I will also uh, mention about this, and again, I haven't been able to substantiate the sources for it yet, but on May Brussels' old broadcast, she mentioned that there was evidence that multiple members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were members of the Temple of Set, and some of them were present at the Vevelsberg working. Hmm. So he was, you know, uh, far from being, you know, just the member of <clears throat> the leader of this obscure little cult. Um, he had some very powerful people. I think one of the the big names that could potentially be kind of linked to him is Alexander Haig, who became the secretary of state. I think he was the f- former uh, supreme commander of NATO and has like a very spooky right wing kind of career um, uh, over the years. And uh I forget I forget how much their paths cross, but he was a big wig in the early Reagan administration and in the Nixon administration, um, and uh, is a pretty pretty grotesque figure. Um, and then there were also, I guess, connections somewhere down the line to, <clears throat> well, since we're talking about NATO, about the Freemasonic uh, P2 Propaganda Due, uh, Freemasonic Lodge in Italy that was basically a neo-fascist secret society run by Licio Gelli, who was a Mussolini supporter during World War II, who said in later years, uh, I was born a fascist and I will die a fascist. Um, he did die a few years ago. Um 
and uh, was responsible for all kinds of terrorist attacks during the years of lead in the 1970s and early 80s, uh, including the Bologna train bombing, some of which were blamed on the communist red brigades, uh, but were actually done by fascists connected to the security services. Um, And also Michael Ledeen, who I guess was connected to P2, involved in NATO, and I think was like wrote a book with General Michael Flynn more recently. Hmm. Like, he's a weird name that pops up all over the place, uh, both in the 80s, Iran-Contra, and even before that with, like, P2 and NATO, and then in the Bush administration after 9-11, and then even with, like, some of these later generals. And I think has kind of become, like, an anti-Muslim sort of conspiracy theorist. Yeah, he's a very interesting figure. Uh, We can touch upon him later. But basically, I mean, uh, Aquino... All of this is to say that his career was going very, very well up through the early 80s. And um, I believe he went to, uh, you know, it was the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. Um, so he was almost, I mean, you could see him almost being groomed to, to be a general maybe by the 90s. Um, and so he comes back from Europe in 84, and I believe he sort of, split between working at the uh, the Presidio U.S. Army base in San Francisco and in St. Louis at, I forget the name of it, but basically kind of moving back and forth. And that is when something happens that kind of flips everything on its head and unleashes the, uh, the floodgates of chaos into this uh, mastermind warrior's life. And uh, that would be the, uh, the Presidio daycare child abuse scandal. Or it may be the Lord 
But you're gonna have to serve some 